Well, as Deborah might say, that that was one of my favorite songs. Um, I I pray that the the last line of lyrics is true. That those are the things that our hearts always long for. <laughs> I mean, we sing those things, and I think I I think that this is something we say, but is it something we truly want? And I thank you, Adam, for your prayer for us that uh, we would not be distracted from hearing the Lord's word tonight. So um, we will continue in our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you're in the church's Bible, we will be on page 763 in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So some, some housekeeping that we, we talked about last week. Um, I hope that, that you'll find time if you're interested in knowing some of the background of what is going on in Solomon's life at this point that you'll read in 1 Kings chapters 2 through 11. There's a lot there. And that you'll read in Ecclesiastes um, where we'll be studying because there is, there's a lot that, that is going on in each verse that we're reading there's a lot of information and a lot of understanding to be, to be gleaned. So, um, Roger, if you don't mind to put up the first slide, I, I've got a, a little bit of stuff that we'll, we'll review from last week because I know there was a lot of information. The book of Ecclesiastes is in the category of what is called the, the writings, um, the Old Testament is divided into three different sections. And you may have heard this called the Tanakh. And, and that would be a T, an N, and kind of a K sound. We add the vowels to make it readable. But the Tanakh contains the Torah. So the Torah being Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then the, the Nebaim, which are the prophets. Uh, the prophets include Amos, like we've studied, and Isaiah and Jeremiah. They also include the books of First and Second Samuel. And the third category are the Ketuvim, or the writings. So Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, and many other books are a part of the writings. And this is important because we're, we're reading in Ecclesiastes different than we read in Amos. Amos was a book of prophecy and a collection of things that the Lord commanded Amos to share with different audiences. But what we're reading in Ecclesiastes is very different. It is much like a journal or a diary that Solomon records towards the end of his life. And so he is being transparent and reflective not only with himself, but with the Lord, so that he can share these understandings with us. And so it's a very unique and different book. So the title of Ecclesiastes, really, we should understand in two different ways. So most of the books in our Old Testament, the names of them are actually Greek understandings. Because the Old Testament was eventually translated into Greek. And that's what Jesus and most of those in the New Testament would have read. They might have known Hebrew, they might have spoke Aramaic, but they likely would have read the Bible in Greek. And so um, maybe I'll, I'll start then by, by saying um, that the Hebrew name for what we read 
is called Koheleth. And it's, it's from the first words of Ecclesiastes 1. It says, the words of the preacher. And so the preacher is the Koheleth. And it would be translated as we have here as preacher. Now why this is important is because when the New Testament readers would have written, excuse me, read from this Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, they, they translated the name for this book as Ecclesiastes. And this is kind of a Greek version, so that's why it's uniquely spelled with the Ks. But Ecclesiastes means speaker of a called out assembly. The reason that's important is because really that's a, a fuller understanding of what a preacher is. A preacher is a speaker, but a preacher isn't just one who preaches what they want or what they think or to any random audience that might listen. A preacher, according to scripture, is one who would speak to a called out assembly. Um, this word ek means out of. The fullness of this word is really a congregation. And so these, these two ideas are, are kind of made fuller together to understand that the words that we're reading has an intent to be read or spoken to a body that is called out. That in and of itself is a great message. Because one who, who gets behind the Lord's pulpit and brings the Lord's word should not be speaking on their own accord, but a preacher, a messenger, one who's speaking what the Lord would give. And those that are gathered to hear shouldn't be just those who are gathered for fun or friendship or encouragement, but a group that would be called out. And those are the words that we're studying from. So the last thing that we, we kind of talked about last week is the language of Ecclesiastes. It is not encouraging. It is not even direct and straightforward all the time. Two main components that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes, the first is vanity. This is the key word for the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used 38 different times in the book. And it's this idea that much of what we experience in this life is vain and meaningless and empty. And Solomon's goal is to draw our attention to that. To really reveal to us what we already know to be true, but to highlight it again and again. And then he focuses on this idea of under the sun. A phrase that he uses 31 different times to really explain what we what we experience in our world that seems the fullest sense of reality, he says, is really an empty understanding of the true reality that we live in. He uses this idea under the sun, I think, as a spiritual metaphor for the flesh, for sin, for this world, for a life not only without eternity in mind, but a life without God. So this book is technically anonymous, we remember, but Solomon is overwhelmingly considered its author. Even in chapter 1, verse 1, 
the author says, the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now we know that, that, that many could say they were son of David. Many could say they were even king in Jerusalem. But Solomon was truly the only one who was king in Jerusalem who was son of David. In fact, after Solomon, um, after Solomon was dethroned, the kingdom was divided and split and lots of very terrible things happened. So this, I believe, is absolutely Solomon. Now, Solomon wrote many books, not many, he wrote a few, but the first book he wrote was Song of Songs. And this was written really in Solomon's young age as a young man. He wrote the book of Proverbs when he was middle-aged. And finally, he wrote this book, Ecclesiastes, in his old age. And that should give us some some. I guess things to consider because if Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs as a middle-aged person and Proverbs contains some of the greatest wisdom and understanding in scripture, we should understand this book to be far, far different and equally significant, although it has a very different tone. So Solomon was king over the United Kingdom, over Israel and Judah and all of the 12 tribes for 40 years, and uh, last week we read in 1 Kings 11 how um, Solomon really didn't follow all of the Lord's commandments. In fact, the Lord had to reveal again and again and even appeared to Solomon twice, and Solomon just kind of went his own way. And so in chapter 11, the Lord tells Solomon that he will tear the kingdom of Israel from him. So I believe that what we what we read here is Solomon's response to the Lord getting his attention finally. So last week we talked about how the book of Ecclesiastes is written. It is poetic, it is clever, but it is grim and pessimistic and even sarcastic. It's not filled with praise or encouragement, but instead Solomon is really cutting through all of the the nonsense that, that really most preachers would lead with. Limericks and stories and parables and fun things. Solomon cuts out all of that. And he goes directly for honest reflection and assessment of a life spent without God. See, Solomon is writing, I, I believe, like, like a parent or a friend who knows best. Solomon shaking us by the shoulders and saying, don't do what I have done. Okay. So, um, Roger, if you go to the next slide, please. Um, here's just a, a brief kind of outline of what we're going to read in Ecclesiastes. Um, it is, in a sense, like a long journal entry or a long poem. And so it's kind of separations aren't as clear as some books that have a very, very intentional introduction and a body and a conclusion. But really, it is kind of like one long journal entry filled with many different insights that Solomon has. So tonight we're going to, to finish really what is his introduction and he's going to let us know what his goal and his aim is in this book. And then he's going to spend the majority of his time 
investigating life. He's going to share about the things that he has went and sought out and searched to understand so that he can give us his conclusions and share what he's learned about life. He's going to kind of tie things up with a poem for us to reinforce the things that he's already shared. And then essentially he's going to give us one last ditch effort to say, please heed my word. All right, so if you turn with me, we'll, we're going to read um, all of chapter 1 tonight, but we'll begin with really what is the first section, the prologue, the, the initial poem that Solomon has for us. So we'll read verses 1 through 11. Solomon says, The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away, and another comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they turn, return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been done is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things to come after by those who will come after. So I have read through this, this passage um, at least ten times this week. And I've stopped at different points, and I've kind of highlighted and made some notes, and I've read again, and I've continued. And I have this feeling that is both depressed and refreshed at the same time. I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm overcome with distress. And I'm encouraged at the same time. This is the power of God's word. God's word that is a double-edged sword, as Hebrews says, that it cuts on both sides as it goes in and as it comes out. This is the good news of Jesus, that his word would cut us on both sides as it goes in and it cuts out. Not just that it would cut us and condemn us. Not just that it would cut us and encourage us and lead us to be happy but that it would do both of these things at the same time. Now, we can be depressed by this passage because we realize at a gut level that we're just eking our way by. Days filled with accepting tiredness, deciding to be unhappy, going to work, enduring meetings, emails, or the like. Right, We're just hamsters on a wheel. We are just rats in a race. We are just cogs in a machine. 
And at a very basic level, this is what Solomon is saying. He's saying nothing new is happening under the sun. Everything is the same. This this meaningless existence that he's describing is a life that is undefined by our great God. He's not describing the life that God envisioned for mankind. He is describing a life that man has chosen by being separated from God. Or a life, a changed life where one has wasted God's work and freedom because of a choice to remain in spirits that bind up God's purpose and develop further bondage. So here's the thing. These, these words are kind of depressing. If we read these words and go, woo, we have missed his point. He's not here to encourage us and cheer us on. He's here to be frank and real with us and ask us to be frank and real with ourselves. What profit do we have for all of our work? People come, people go, people live, people die. The earth is forever, the sun rises and it sets. The wind blows in every direction, it swirls around. The rivers run, but somehow the sea remains at sea level. Eyes can't see enough, ears can't hear enough. All that has happened will happen and happen and happen all the same, Solomon says. What he's saying in these several different ways, he's hoping any one of these will make sense to us. One of these will grab our attention. Despite all that man has achieved, despite the great pyramids that were built and the the, the computers that are designed today, all the progress we feel like we have made, it's all the same. There's cycles, there's progressions, but it's all the same. We have a birthday today. I wonder if things have changed much from a few years ago to today. There's been lots of great change, but really it's still the same. Really we still have an enemy who follows us wherever we go and tries to wreak havoc. The great things we accomplish really mean nothing when he undoes God's work in our lives. It's all the same, he would say. So yes, this is depressing to acknowledge vanity, to acknowledge meaningless. Realizing this should be depressing. But if we look at this same truth through spiritual eyes, it can instead be refreshing. So the Lord gave me this word refreshed this week. He said most would read this and be depressed. But I've come that you would read this and be refreshed. So I've been thinking about this word refreshed. I thought, oh, that sounds fantastic. I love to be refreshed. I love to have a cool drink of water on a hot day. I love to feel like a a new person after getting to get cleaned up after the end of a long, long day. So I, I almost assumed that there would be tons of scriptures filling the pages with this idea of being refreshed. Surprisingly, there's just a few. I thought there'd be many words in the Old Testament and the, and the New to describe this word, but there's just a few, and I find that in and of itself significant. See, we want to read every page and assume it's refreshing us in the way we want to be refreshed, but Scripture tells us and gives us understanding that refreshing comes in certain ways. 
So there's three words I want us to look at and I think have great significance for us. The first word is, is the word nephesh. And it actually comes from a word that we read tonight in the Shema. It says that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our strength. But the word soul is nephesh. It means the, the, the spirit of a person, so to speak. It doesn't mean the heart, which at that time was the seat of decision-making. It didn't mean the mind, which was filled with emotion and gooey stuff and romance and drama, but the spirit. So turn with me to uh, our first scripture. It's going to be in Exodus chapter 31 on page 98 in the church's Bible. Exodus chapter 31, where this, this word nephesh, which means refresh, is used. Exodus chapter 31, page 98. So in Exodus 31, Moses is talking about the Sabbath and the significance and importance of keeping the Sabbath. Um, let's read a couple verses. Let's read uh, 15 through 17. It says, Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is a Sabbath rest. Holy to the Lord, whoever does work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now we studied on the Sabbath a few months ago, and we talked about this idea of, of, of Sabbath and, and it being rest, it not meaning that the Lord needed a nap, that he was tired, that he was worn out, but that he would stop from what he was doing and cease. It said he was refreshed. See, refreshed was the result of the Sabbath. It was the result of stopping in all his creation. And Sabbath is a, is a picture and a teaching for us that when, when we join in the Sabbath, we're not just stopping from our work this week. It's a picture that we're to stop from our work in the flesh. That we're to be refreshed by the Lord's Spirit. I want to turn one other place that uses this same word, nephesh. Go back just a few pages to Exodus 23. Exodus 23, page 87. In Exodus 23, it's talking about the Sabbath here as well, but this is a little different of, of a, a commandment. In verse 12, it says, Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, the sons of your female servant and stranger may be refreshed. So even here, it is talking about the stranger being refreshed as a result of resting. Refreshing happens when we stop what we're doing and we align with what God has commanded us to do. Okay, the next, the next word that the Old Testament translates as refreshed 
is the word sa'ad. And this word means to support or to sustain, sustain, excuse me, to support or to sustain. Now it's important to know what a word means because when it's translated as something a little different, we get our understanding from what that word was meant to, to do and to be. So if we read refreshed everywhere as somebody getting a drink, then we miss God's purpose in Sabbath, right? It wasn't that God sat down and took a drink of water and goes, oh, I'm refreshed. No, that's not what it's saying at all. And likewise here, this word means to support or to sustain. So we're in Genesis 18, if you're in the church's Bible, on page 17. Genesis 18. So in this passage, we'll not read all of it, but this is a, a place where Abraham gets to, gets to meet God, gets to meet God in this way where God sent some servants to meet Moses, and Moses got to encounter God. In verse 5 it says, And I will bring you a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. So refreshed here, this word is translating support and sustenance as food. And so those that Abraham was hosting, those who ate some of the food that he brought, were refreshed by physical food. There's one more word translated as refreshed in the Old Testament, and it's actually a word that we know. It's the word shub. And this word shub is where we get the word repentance. It means to turn back or to return. Turn with me to Proverbs 25.13. Proverbs 25.13. I apologize, yes. It is on page 755. Proverbs 25, page 755. Okay, so in Proverbs 25, verse 13, we read with me. It says, like the cold of snow in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. Now, in this, in this last verse is this word shub, which many other places would mean for someone to turn from going one direction and go another. It's how we understand repentance, not that we say we're sorry, but that we stop the direction that we're going and we go back. And here, it is talking about a messenger who would come to give a word and this messenger who would refresh those around like drinking snow when you're thirsty or dehydrated. A messenger giving a word to somebody that would refresh them and in a sense turn them back from where they were going. 
Now, you may be wondering, why did we just read all of these three verses about this idea of being refreshed? The spiritual meaning of refreshing is in these words we've just read. To be renewed by stopping our way, our own way, to be sustained by consuming spiritual food, and to turn back from sin to receive from the messenger. This is what it means to be refreshed. This is so important in our message from Solomon because Solomon's message is not consistent with what we hear in most worship songs and most church messages. It's not refreshing in the sense that our flesh desires. See, our our flesh can't be refreshed. Our spirit has to be refreshed. This word refreshed itself comes from the Hebrew word for soul or spirit. Only the soul or spirit can truly be refreshed, right? The flesh cannot, the heart cannot, the mind cannot. The other places that we would read of in Deuteronomy, the heart and the soul and the mind. In order to do this, in order to be refreshed, we've got to overcome our flesh. Which I think is defaulted to depression. Our flesh is defaulted to being depressed by truth. So when we read Solomon's words that says all of this life is meaningless and it is empty, our flesh's default is to go, But our spirit, our spirit's default is to be refreshed by the truth that we've heard. To be encouraged that there is nothing great for us in this physical life, but there are great things in the spiritual life for us. If we see this spiritually, then we can be liberated from the bondage of these physical, worldly certainties. But in order to see this spiritually, we must acknowledge this. I think most of the church is wanting to not really acknowledge this reality that there's nothing for us here. That doesn't preach, they might say. That doesn't itch our ears to say there's really nothing for us in that world. No, most want to say, well, whatever you're doing... That's pretty much where God wants you. And he wants to use you there and work you there and grow in the things that you have amassed for yourself. And those are all pretty good things. God can use all of those things. That's a heresy that's nowhere in Scripture. God doesn't say he wants to use all of the circumstances that we make and allow us to just make our own decisions and then kind of turn those out for good. No, God wants to change us. The sooner we realize the things of this physical world are of no value, the sooner we can focus on the spiritual things and we can receive them. So we've got to recognize that our lives are doomed, Solomon says. Ultimately, that our work serves no spiritual purpose. Sadly, that people live and people die. Amazingly, the earth is really old and it's going to continue to do what it's doing. We see and hear, what we see and hear revolves around us. History is repeating itself and sin abounds. 
This is the real physical place that we live in. And these things under the sun that Solomon talks about are synonymous with sin. So likewise, if we cannot see the vanity and the emptiness of these things that we know are inherently not good, how will we understand the unholiness of sin? Unless we see the vanity of these physical empty things, we cannot truly desire the things of the Spirit. What has proven so powerful to me this week is that the choice is, is really more simple than I often make it. The choice is really black and white. It's dark and light. It's that I can be depressed or refreshed by God's revelation to me, and we can ourselves. If we choose depression, then the enemy has a right to bring in destruction as a result of our choice. See, if we hear the Lord's truth and we go, oh, we have invited the enemy's work in our life. However, if we choose to be refreshed by the truth of God, the Spirit then breathes life into us to change us, to deliver us from sin, ignorance, and bondage. So let's turn back to Ecclesiastes in the church's Bible page 763 for part B of Solomon's message. So let's read verses 12 through 18 together. Solomon says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity, grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I have communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness, and I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So this is Solomon's response to him teeing up this most depressing and empty sounding situation that he could. Now if we're hearing it and knowing what he's going towards, then we can be refreshed by these words. He says in verse 13, he says, I have sought and searched. I, I set my heart to seek and search out. Now these are two things that sound very different, uh, excuse me, sound very synonymous but are very different one means to to look at something from close up and examine it and the other means to go on a journey way far out and take a survey it means to journey to understand I fear that we often do one or the other of these we say we we want to hear from the Lord well we really want to just kind of look at something close up ah if it's really easy for me to see wonderful I'll look at it Solomon does not give excuse to understanding from the Lord. He says if we want to hear from the Lord, we've got to do both of these things. We have to seek and we have to search out wisdom concerning all that's done 
under heaven. He, he uses this word wisdom. This is an important word for, for Solomon because he's the, he's the one who the Lord said he could have anything he wanted and what did Solomon ask for? He asked for wisdom. Here's the thing. I think the Lord gave Solomon wisdom. And he gave Solomon opportunity. What Solomon took was the wisdom and he refused the opportunity. I think the Lord started in what was wisdom that would dazzle the queen of Sheba and those who would bring babies to him saying, this is mine and this is mine. But he squandered the spiritual opportunity to truly be led into the understanding of God. So even here, he's talking about physical things. Because he says, all that's done under heaven, it's a synonym for under the sun. All that's done in this world, all that's done in a life spent without God. This burdensome task, he says, God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. This word exercise is so interesting. It's a word that actually means to be bowed down or afflicted. It doesn't mean exercise like running a race or lifting weights or, you know, uh, power walking. It's a word that means to be tried. It is a word that, that means to be shown where one's place is, to be brought before a king and to bow down. And I think Solomon's point is to say that God has given, a, has given us the task of realizing the meaning of this life is nothing. God's given us this task. Our wisdom is insufficient. For in verse 14, he says, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. He says this with such certainty that all situations in life, verse 15 is true for, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. If you've ever tried to do something on your own, you know this is true. We can't straighten that which is crooked. We can't even number all of the things that are lacking in our lives when we are in the things of the flesh, when we're following our own path. It's not going to work out. When we're under the sun, when we're in the things of the flesh, when we're in sin, when we're in our own way and our plans, all is crooked and it cannot be made straight despite our best efforts. Solomon's saying he's tried to make everything straight with all the wisdom God has given him. And it didn't happen. There's no limit and no number to the amount of wrongness to our flesh. This is almost comical. Yet we think somehow we're just going to manage to get it right in our flesh. You ever feel that way? Oh, surely if I just keep trying in my flesh, I'm going to get it pretty close to the spiritual things of God. We can try, we can hope, we can do our best, but it isn't going to happen. The flesh is simply useless. I mean, we read this again and again on the pages of the New Testament, that we're of no value to God without his work in our lives. Next, in verse 16, he says, um, he says, I communed in my heart saying, wait, where do I want to read here? Okay, I communed with my heart saying, look, I've attained greatness. I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. What Solomon is doing here is he's reminding us that he's not just a, a regular Joe. He's not just a guy who's all of a sudden thought, hmm, life really is meaningless. 
He would have been known like Plato or Aristotle in his day, Max Licato or C.S. Lewis in our day. People that were thought to be spiritual and philosophical jargonauts. He says, I knew all that one could possibly know and it meant nothing. I still went my own way. I still chose to have 700 wives and 300 concubines. I still chose to tax my people uh, up to billions of dollars in modern wealth a year and put them in bondage all for myself and still I found no meaning in life. It's all empty. Verse 17, he says, And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. He says it another way. That, that still in his own way, he's trying and trying and trying to understand Let's continue on in 18. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. I think at first, even in a, in a pretty simple way, he's saying that the more I knew, the more I realized I was ignorant. The more I learned about wisdom, I realized I really didn't have any. But I believe that the things of God he's trying to share with us even understanding the emptiness of life, he realized that the more he knew, the more painful it was. When we get actual wisdom, it won't feel like an accomplishment. It, it will be sobering. We won't pound our chests with excitement and share our wisdom with others. It will cause us grief over the spiritual destruction that we can recognize. I think this would be indeed what Charlie Brown would say is good grief. Grief that is spirit-led. Grief that is according to God's plan. Grief that would cause us to leave sin and leave spirits for the things of God. For in much of this wisdom would be an increase of sorrow. Y'all know one of my favorite scriptures that Jesus says, that, uh, one of my favorite things that he says is in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not blessed are those who are depressed, but blessed are those who acknowledge where they're at, who acknowledge that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they need a Savior, that they need the Holy Spirit inside of them. I think this is what Jesus is saying akin to what Solomon is saying. If we have much wisdom, we will have much sorrow. We may bebop around life as if we don't have a care in the world. And I think that for those who are walking with Jesus, we can have joy. But joy and false happiness are two different things. We've got to be grieved by the things that grieve the Spirit of God and given joy by the things that give the Spirit of God joy. I was thinking about some of the things that we were talking about at dinner because as I shared, I've had a week. I've had a week where I'm, and I'm not complaining, I'm not. 
but I've had a week where I feel like I could not get out of the path of the tornado. It was on every direction. I'm trying to mind my own business, and trouble is there. But that's where the Lord begins to reveal something. Multiple times the Lord has shown me the places and the attitudes I've had that were not according to his ways, not glorifying him. And I've seen this choice before me. This choice to get frustrated with others, myself, or even the Lord's conviction to be depressed. Or, or to be refreshed by the power of his truth and to be delivered from the enemy and my own self for his glory. That's what Solomon's trying to tell us, is that everything that we experience, we have a choice. We have a choice to ask and to seek to align one way or another. We are choosing our own spiritual condition. We cannot change the way of the world, and we cannot change the way of the enemy. Solomon would agree, they are certain. But we can choose in whom we trust. As we go through Ecclesiastes, I pray that you will read, but I pray that you will seek the Lord for these things. I pray that you'll ask him, what is the same? What hasn't changed? And ask him to show you what will.